All right, why don't you guys open up to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. I've only been in a few uh, life and death situations in my life. One of them uh, was uh, when I was skiing for the first time, well, snowboarding for the first time, and the last time, and uh, almost died on a double black diamond. Don't ask me how I got there. I just did. Survived it somehow. But another time was... uh, a few years ago, my wife and I uh, like to scuba dive um, when somebody else pays for it. And, <laughs> and so we went scuba diving. And um, I won't give you the details of how deep we went, but we decided that we were going to do what's called a technical deep dive. And so we went deeper than you're supposed to go by a lot. And the farther down we went, the darker and colder it gets and the more compressed you get, and the more you realize I have no ability to shoot to the surface if I have a problem. That's why it's called a technical dive. You have to be good at diving to do it. Well, we were with somebody who was a technical diver, and um, we started to go down, and, and at about 80 feet, uh, something kicks in called nitrogen narcosis. You get narked, is what it's called, right? It's, it's basically you become inebriated, and you can't really tell what's going on. Oh, pretty bubbles, right? That's kind of what happens. And so as you keep going down and you keep going down, you have to really focus in because your mind is blurry and nothing's making sense. And Kelly was hearing Super Mario Brothers sounds, pling, pling, you know, in her head. And I've got music playing in my head and you can hear your breathing and it is scary. I have been, uh, not, not been as scared as I was uh, then, uh, any other time in my life. And so you focus on your instruments and you pay attention. Well, we'd gotten down to such a depth that I had to just really focus and and say, just pay attention to your oxygen gauge. Just pay attention. And so I'm watching the needle, and any of you that have ever um, looked into diving or or, uh, dive yourself, you know that the lower you get, the deeper you get, the faster you use up oxygen. And so that needle, seriously, was just ticking like this. Now, here's the cool part about technical diving. You carry multiple tanks. And the reason is is because when you come back up, something forms in your body uh, called nitrogen, And as you come up, if you come up too fast, the nitrogen in your blood vessels will expand and it will explode and cause an embolism in your head. So you don't want to do that. You want to go slow. And so you take with you a lot of oxygen in order to make it through and uh, not have to worry about running out of oxygen. Well, I had forgotten the fact that I had not only a giant tank on my back, but a giant tank on my side. I was paying attention to my gauge and I'm watching this, this needle go down. And all of a sudden, I realize I'm not going to make it if I only had one tank. I had forgotten completely that the tank was on my side, and I was focused on this gauge. And as the needle went by, I look back at the dive master that's with us, and I start to freak out a little bit, right? Now, this means you're out of air, and this means you're at, I think, like a quarter of your tank left. Well, I kind of did this, right, in the middle of the water. I start freaking out, and and so he thinks I'm out of air, and so he swims up really fast to me, and he grabs my gauge, and he looks at it, and then he realizes what's going on, and he, he points at it, and he says, and then he points at my tank, and he holds up the second mouthpiece, and he says, you are okay. Now, I didn't feel okay. Scared out of my mind. The problem is, is that I had my eyes focused on the wrong thing. 
I had my confidence in this gauge and, and my own ability in order to figure out what the air was and, and to consume it well. I'd, on this trip specifically, I'd figured out some tricks where I started to conserve air because, you know, you guys know me. I'm a big blowhard, right? So I use a lot of air. Well, on this trip, I hadn't, and so I put my confidence in this gauge and in the tank and in myself as opposed to putting it in the truth, which was, I'm going to be okay because I've got enough air. And what I needed was somebody to come remind me of this truth, that even though I was completely misplacing my confidence and having fear in the wrong thing, I'm going to run out of air, was I? No, I had a second tank. I needed someone else to come and tell me the truth of what was going on so that I could put my confidence and really my fear in the proper place. You see, what I should have been fearful of is going up too quickly because the thing I couldn't see in front of me, uh, the fact that nitrogen bubbles would pop in my bloodstream and cause an embolism, that was the thing that was really the scary part. But I can't see nitrogen bubbles So what am I freaking out about? I'm freaking out about the thing that I see that's in front of me that makes sense to me. My fear was misplaced. My confidence was misplaced. The last two weeks in Isaiah, we've been going through and discussing the impending threats upon Ahaz and the kingdom of Judah of Syria in the north and Israel, Assyria from the east, Egypt from the south. They were freaking out. They looked around them and what they saw was impending doom. And what they were supposed to do was turn to God and trust in him because he was their covenant God. He was the one who would be their refuge. But what they were doing was they were looking in their own confidence at making alliances around them. And so in order to get rid of Assyria, or excuse me, Syria and Israel, they looked to Assyria. They said, we know you're dangerous. We know you're an enemy, but we're going to ally with you so that you can protect us. And they placed their confidence in this. In our text today, Isaiah responds to this on behalf of God and speaks to the people of Judah and warns them against putting their confidence in the wrong place. He's going to outline for them today the big thing I want to get across to you is this. Misplaced confidence leads to misplaced fear. Misplaced confidence leads to misplaced fear. You can write that down if you want. These two things, what we put our confidence in and what we're fearful of, uh, they're massive because they both speak to what we worship. What we look to for security, that's what we worship. What we fear losing, that speaks to what we worship. So let's take a first look here at at the confidence of Judah. And we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 8 here, misplaced confidence. Take a look with me. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Good name for those of you expecting. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Right here we begin with this weird situation, this act of illustrative prophecy. A lot of the times the prophets are asked to act in certain ways and that speaks the truth to the people around them. God says to Isaiah, I want you to go and I want you to create a billboard, basically. 
Okay, you guys have all driven down the road. You've seen a billboard on the side. I want you to take a document. I want you to write on it, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And then I'm going to send a couple of witnesses. And I want them to legalize it, to make it solid, make it firm, right? Because in this culture, two witnesses meant it was legal. It was strong, okay? And he says, you're going to do this and you're going to present it to the people. Now, what does Maher Shalal Hashbaz mean? Well, you might have a note in your Bible. It means something along the lines of the spoil speeds or the prey hastens. Okay? What this is speaking about is that someone is coming quickly to take spoil of their enemies, Israel and Syria. And so Isaiah presents this to the people and he says, someone's coming quickly to destroy our enemies. Now, was this good news to the Judahites? What do you think? Our enemies are going to be destroyed. Of course it was. They went, yes, this sounds awesome. Let's, let's do this. This is great. And to back this word of prophecy, God gives Isaiah a child. He conceives it with his wife, the prophetess. And then the baby is born, and he calls him Maher Shalal Hashbaz and gives a continuation of the prophecy and says, before this child knows how to cry my father or mother, our enemies will be destroyed. The wealth of Damascus, Israel, they'll be torn away. Now, all of this prophecy was given before he ever even conceived the child. And so this action that God does here in giving them this child speaks amazing truth that Isaiah is the prophet of God, that he is the one that they're to listen to. And he's saying roughly in two years, your enemies will be destroyed. And so two years later, after conception and and then the birth, and then eventually when the child came to know how to say, my mother or my father, By this point, Israel and Syria, they were wiped out. Many commentators point this to the year 732, and they say this was the point uh, that Assyria came in and wiped out Israel and Syria. Now, what do you believe the response of the people was? Do people like to hear good news? Yes. They loved it. They, They probably said, oh man, Isaiah, this is great. Finally, you're on our side. You're telling us things we want to hear. Right? But does this mean that they were secure? Just because he gave this prophecy and stated to them that this was going to happen, did this mean that they were secure? No, it didn't. Because if you'd been reading the rest of Isaiah, what you see is their security might be temporary, but their security in God was not even there. See, they trusted in their alliance with this earthly kingdom, Assyria, in going against God, and it was working out for them. Life was going well. Life was bad. Now it's good. We must be secure. This seems to be a tendency in human nature, doesn't it? It It's amazing to hear us as Christians talk about when God is at work or when he's not. When do we, as American Christians, mostly say God is at work? When life is good. When we pursue whatever we want to pursue, and it seems to work out for us, that must be God working on our behalf. But see, the reality is, is it's not if life is bad or life is good that dictates if God is at work in our lives. The truth is, is that God is at work in our lives all the time. If this were not the case, why is it the case that in Psalms, the greatest amount of Psalms in one type is the type of lament. 
See, the Jews viewed lament, they viewed sorrow, they viewed mourning, even in and of itself, as worship to God. God was not good if life was good. God was good all the time. But our prosperity culture has so much driven us to this understanding that, well, God is only good if life is good. See, the Jews understood that God was good all the time. They understood that our ups and downs, their ups and downs, do not dictate God's goodness. In fact, it's interesting, some of the most faithful people I know who follow Jesus are some of the most uncomfortable people. We just talked about the foster families. Talk to any one of them. It's not comfortable. (laughs) Talk to missionaries in the church. It's not comfortable. Those who are pursuing after living a life of righteousness and justice, not that they're better than anyone else, but their pursuit of holiness has led to extreme discomfort. At the same time, some of the most faithless Christians I know are some of the most secure, comfortable, prosperous people. We cannot look to the gauge of our prosperity or happiness to state whether or not God is good. And the problem with Judah was that they were saying, well, this is wonderful. This is great. This is what we've been looking for. In Isaiah chapter 7, the whole chapter was Ahaz trying to figure out how to gain security by aligning with Assyria. And now it's come to pass. It's as if they believe a stamp of approval is on what's happened. But the problem is, is that God is not approved. He's simply given them over to what they're desiring. Take a look at verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over reason and the son of Ramalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. The waters here of Shiloh, they're a small underground spring that fed the people of of Jerusalem. Not massive body of water, but it was specific for them. It was something that God had placed right there in Jerusalem for them to be sustained. The great river he's talking about here is the river that runs through the land of Assyria, the Euphrates. Now, if you've ever seen the Euphrates, it's kind of akin to the Columbia. Not as big, but it's a big, big river. Now, do you mess around with the Columbia? You jump in thinking, I can just swim across it. No, you don't, because it's more powerful than you are. You might jump across the spring here, the the spring of Shiloh, the Gihon Spring, but you're not going to mess around with the Euphrates. These people, the Judahites, had said, we're not going to take what God has specifically made for us in provision. We want to come up with our own plan and put our confidence in something else, misplaced confidence. We want to put it in Assyria, the enemies of God. So God, in essence here, is saying, I'm going to give them what they wanted. They wanted Assyria, they will get Assyria. They will fill the land. But Isaiah knows that by the end of this, it will be destruction. And their misplaced confidence will lead to destruction in the land. And he finishes this section with this cry, O Emmanuel, as if a prayer to say, God, please be with us. It's the same name that was referenced back in chapter 7 when God gave the prophecy of judgment upon Judah. 
And so he sees this. He knows that they've put their confidence in the wrong spot. But they were viewing it as something to rejoice over. Guys, I fear that many American Christians who are not devoted to Christ, but truly, truly are devoted to Christ only as long as he brings them prosperity in their business, in their livelihood, in their success. They're in the same spot. And if you are one of them, I fear for you. We think that God is right next to our side because business is going well. That is not the statement of whether or not God is with you. This is what they believed. Their confidence was in the wrong thing. And it led to misplaced fear. Their fear was in somebody coming and destroying them. Their fear should have been in God, as we'll see in a second. So he continues, verse 9. He says, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. The reality is, is that Isaiah is not worried either way because he knows. Yes, Assyria may have won this battle, but in the end, the Lord is the one that will triumph. All political and social and cultural structures and systems, they will be destroyed. They will be shattered. Notice he repeats the word shattered three times. Why? Because God is the one that's in control. God is the one that is powerful. He is the one that will come and destroy anything raised up against him. And he finishes with the same word, Emmanuel. God is with us. Emmanuel. And he's telling us, put confidence in the right spot. Do not put confidence in treasures. Do not put confidence in a God that is not the God of the Bible, a God of your own thinking. Do not put confidence in anything other than Yahweh. This is his whole point. Don't misplace your confidence. Turn with me for a second to Psalm 46. Notice what it says. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Ponder that. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
This statement, be still and know that I am God, it is not something just to meditate on. It doesn't just happen in our quiet times. This is a statement of power. In other words, you don't have to worry about anything because I have it, he says. God is the one that will be victorious. And as long as we are on his side, the side of the God of the Bible, not a God that we create in our own minds, we will be victorious with him. But the reality is, is that so many of us live in blatant rebellion against this God and have created a God in our own minds that we've aligned with, that we follow. A God of prosperity. A God of cheap grace. And God was in opposition to the Judahites because they had mixed together all this idea of who God was rather than following the God of the Bible. God was in opposition to them because their priorities had been turned upside down. And they began to have confidence in things of the world rather than in God. So Isaiah points out that misplaced confidence, well, it's going to lead to misplaced fear. Go back to Isaiah with me. And this is the next big point you can write down. We see the misplaced fear of Judah. They were worried about armies coming and beating down their door. What should they have been fearful of? The fact that they were in blatant rebellion against the judge of the universe. I was sitting there looking at my gauge going, I'm going to run out of air. You know what I needed to be worried about? Freaking out and going to the surface and dying of an embolism. That's what I needed to be worried about. These guys were so worried about what they saw in front of their face that they were missing out on the most, oh, man, I'm just so worried about this thing coming up, you know. I'm so worried about whether or not my business is going to make it. I'm so worried about whether or not I'm going to pay this bill. Don't worry about that. Worry about whether or not you're in alignment with God. Because if you are, guess what? He's your refuge and strength. He will take care of you. We have misplaced fear as Christians. Take a look at verse 11 there in Isaiah. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and wanted me, uh, warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. See, we either fall upon the rock, Jesus Christ, and we break ourselves in humility, or we continue in rebellious sin, and he will land on us and destroy us. God very forcefully emphasizes and warns Isaiah here not to be like the people of Judah who mixed with the world around them. When news sprang up, stories sprang up, conspiracies abounded, when the latest gossip came down the pike, the people of Judah feared. Guys, this, this is so clear to me in the last few months. I've watched Christians be Twitter-pated about the conspiracies of politics ad infinitum. We are above it because we know who the king is. We don't follow in the same fears and deal with the same conspiracies and 
listen to the talk radio shows and spend all of our time on Fox News. Oh, yeah, gosh, this is just terrible. No, guys, you worship the king of the universe. You're above all that. We have all these conspiracies and fears rage around us and we spend all of our time focused on these when we need to be focusing on the truth, which is honor God that is holy. He's the one we have confidence in. He's the one we put our trust in. It's been said that if you fear Almighty God, you have nothing to fear. Why? Because he's in your corner. Financial trouble? Well, this God provides. Health issues? This God heals, if not now, in the life to come. Relationship issues? This God reconciles. Loss? This God restores. Death? This God resurrects. Our good brother William Bain, front row William. Are you here, William? He said he might drop by for a minute. He found out this week that if he chooses to go into hospice because cancer has taken over his body, he's got six months to live. If he chooses to go into chemotherapy, he's got a year and a half. I asked William if I could bring that up, and he said, absolutely, and here's the reason I do. I got the honor and pleasure of sitting with my brother for an hour yesterday. That man is not scared. He is not fearing death. That is a man of faith. See, when we put our confidence in worldly things, they will let us down. Those of you that strive so hard for finances and success and business, it will let you down. Those of you that strive so hard for relationships, they will let you down. The truth of the matter is, is that you need to be honoring God because at the end of days, maybe even at the end of your days, that is all that matters. And when you put your confidence in God, you can be presented with the worst possible news and you will have no fear. A commentator who I've quoted often in the midst of Isaiah, J. Alec Motier, he says this about verse 12. He says, the fact that verse 12 is so nonspecific indicates that it is not particularly important to know what the world fears. The important thing is that the world should know what the believer fears, namely the Lord. In the midst of a fearful people, Isaiah and his disciples are not fearless, Their fear is differently directed. Their lives are to be governed by a theological awareness of the Lord, Yahweh, the Exodus God, who redeems his people and overthrows his foes. Now, this is so important. That last piece he said there, he is the God that redeems his people and overthrows his foes. See, we have to ask this weird question. Why does he talk about fear so much if we're supposed to love him? In our culture, that doesn't make sense to combine fear and love. But the reality is, is that our fear is misplaced because our confidence is misplaced. If we fear God enough to stay away from sin, then we will be part of who he is and he will redeem us. 
But if we don't fear God so much that we're playing around with sin, he will destroy us, and we need to fear him. See, I think we have misplaced fear as Christians for a number of reasons. Let me outline three of them here really quick. First is, is I think we have misplaced fear towards God because we buy the lie that Satan fed Eve, that God is not a good God. We've bought into this idea that God is capricious and that every second he might have the chance to switch and turn us away and and completely dismiss us. That's not the God that we serve. Or maybe we are people that want to play around with a line of where sin is and we don't like the idea of a God that calls us to holiness and so we want him to adjust his understanding of holiness so we can be in control. Well, that's not a God that we serve either. The God we serve is a good God who requires holiness of us. Or maybe we let our faulty view of God determine his goodness. And we get so busy watching the things around us and saying that God must not be good because of this or that in our lives that we let our opinion determine God's goodness. But if God is good and if he is just and true, then we have nothing to fear. Because not only... Are we on his side? But when we do falter and fail, he's provided a way out for us. And this is not, this idea of fear is not just an Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament one as well. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 4. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. You just told us to fear, and then you said to fear not. And this is the constant tension we live in within the Bible. How on earth can we fear and fear not? Well, we have to understand why we need fear. I'm going to turn you to one place. Why don't you go with me to Exodus 20? Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, verse 20, Here's what Moses says to the people. He says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. This is it, guys. Why are we to fear? We're to fear God because we don't want to end up on the wrong side of him. We don't want to end up engaging in sin knowingly and rebelliously and standing up as his enemy at the end of days. This is the basic fear that we should have. And that fear then prompts us to seek out and understand what the truth is. That's what this says. You can write this down. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, if we have that basic fear of sin, of destruction, it will turn us towards the Lord. 
And it will get us to say, Lord, I don't want to end up on the wrong side of you. What must I do? What must I do to be saved? This is what happened to the Jews when, uh, when uh, Peter came and, and spoke the gospel to them in Acts. They said, brother, what must we do to be saved? Why? Because he said, you're headed for destruction if you don't turn around. And this is a healthy fear that Isaiah is trying to incite in, this, in, in the people. He's trying to say, have fear in the proper place. If you have fear in the proper place, then your confidence is also going to be in the proper place. But misplaced confidence leads to misplaced fear. We start to fear God because he's not really our confidence. We've put our confidence in everything else. So one of the big questions I get is, well, I I do fear God. What about when I fail? I've put my confidence in him. He's my savior. But what happens when I fail? Well, guys, if we are pursuing Christ as hard as we possibly can, living in a life of repentance, then he's told us what to do with it when we do fail. Turn with me to 1 John. I know I'm jumping all over the place today, but it's good stuff. 1 John. And take a look at 1 John 1.5. If fear is our starting place that turns us to Jesus and we start to see who he is, then we realize we have nothing to fear. Look at what 1 John 1.5 says. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In other words, he doesn't mess around with sin. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, here's the reality. Our God is a good father, and we are his children if we accept him as such. And I don't know about you that are dads in the room, but my kids, I'm always going to be in relationship with them. Now, the more that they sin, the more that they practice rebellious sin, the more it will distance them from me by their own choice. And hopefully my children understand a very healthy tension between the fact that dad is love, but dad also doesn't mess around with stupidity. We have lost this in our culture. I watch us as dads and we're trying to be best buddies with our kids. Stop it. They don't need more best buddies. They need an authority figure that they know is love. But the second they do something stupid, they should be fearful not of abuse, not of harm, but of disappointing the one who loves them so dearly. The way we play around with sin as Christians, I think we have no fear at all. Misplaced confidence leads to misplaced fear. We're confident in the cheap grace we believe in. We're confident in our own works to be good enough. But the thing we need to be confident in is Jesus Christ. And this is where we turn back to Isaiah and we see what he says to us. 
If fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and it drives us to understand him more, where's the best place to go to know how to maintain that confidence and maintain the proper tension between fear and love? Isaiah tells us it's his word. Look at what he says in verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers, those are people that visited the dead, they conducted seances, who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness." See, what Isaiah was saying here is, guys, you can't keep sitting in both worlds. You can't say that you belong to God and not make it a priority to seek after his wisdom, seek after his truth, put confidence in him, fear him. You can't do both. You have to choose what you're going to place your confidence in. Guys, as a pastor, I see this all day, every day, all the time. Let me give you some examples. And if this is you, I'm not picking you out. I have no one in mind. But here are the generals. I want to follow Jesus to find a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Oh, I found one. Now I'm not going to be at church for a while because they're more important. I lost my boyfriend or girlfriend. Now I'm back. What's your confidence in? Business is doing well. I got I to gotta go to work. I got to work hard. My business is the most important thing. Business is doing well. You're here on your knees praying to God that he saves it. My health is good. I don't need to be at church. My health is bad. Lord, please forgive me. Pastor, come pray for me. We live in this world of back and forth and to and fro. And the reality is, is we have to put our confidence in God. And if we do that, if we actually live in a way where everything is invested into God, that he is where we put our confidence, that he is the one we fear, then the reality is, is that fear will be removed completely. See, this is the truth of the Bible. You can write this down. This is my last point. If you place your confidence in God, fear will be removed. The Judahites were so wishy-washy, back and forth, to and fro. And Isaiah is saying, guys, my whole family is invested in this. My own kids are prophetic signs. Follow us in following God. Stop looking to other things to satisfy you and comfort you and protect you and give you security. Focus on God. Because the truth is, is if the fear that leads you away from sin and towards Jesus starts to manifest itself in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, eventually the fear will be dismissed. Let me give you an example. Every husband in here should be fearful of cheating on their wife. 
Why? Because you'll lose your wife. So what does that make you do? Well, it doesn't make you find the line of where adultery is and play around with it. It makes you turn towards your wife and engage your wife and love her as much as you possibly can. At that point, do you need to be fearful? Well, you should still have it in the back of your head. Always is a big red sign that says, don't go past this point. However, loving your wife, you're going to be in love with your wife. You're not going to desire anything else. I find so many of us as Christians, we're sitting on that line, I, I kind of fear God, no, I kind of don't. Well, if you just actually fear God and you drive towards him, then the fear is going to go away. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4 and you'll see what I mean. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. says this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God had for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The first question I ask somebody when they say, I'm really fearful, is I say, is there any unconfessed sin in your life? And if the answer is yes, then it's pretty obvious what my next answer should be to you. You should fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You should quake. You should be scared to death in your sin. Don't leave that point too quickly. Stay right there. You need to understand the weight of your sin before you move on. Be fearful. Because he is a God that will judge you, and he will judge you severely in justice. But, if I ask them that question and I say, do you have any unconfessed sin? And they say, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I, I've talked to people around me. I don't think there's anything in my life. Then what's my answer going to be to them then? You have nothing to fear. Because God is a good God. Do you believe that God is a good God? If so, love him, and that love will cast out fear. You see, I know the reason when I sat down next to William yesterday, why he wasn't fearful. Now, he was honest with me. He said there were points. There were points where my head was spinning and I couldn't collect my thoughts. But I know the reason why he said that he's not fearful. Because that man loves Jesus. And I have walked with him for the last three years, watching him grow in love with Jesus. Not being perfect. Didn't start perfect, won't end perfect but growing in a love for Jesus Christ so that at this point, maybe it changes tomorrow, I don't know, he's human, but at this point, he says, I know what's going to happen, whether it be in six months or a year and a half. Perfect love casts out fear. But there has to be that fear that drives us towards that perfect love. 
And many of us today, I'm worried, we've got our confidence and our fear misplaced to the point where we should be fearful. Now Isaiah finishes off this section we just read, and he says this. He says back in Isaiah 22, those people who are putting their confidence in the wrong things, they will look to the things around them. They will look to earth. This is verse 22. But behold, they will only find distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But see, for those of us who are following after Christ, it's a totally different message because this is where chapter 9 starts. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And this begins the section that we'll cover next week the week before Christmas, that speaks to us of the fact that we can look into this book, to the testimony, to the teaching, and we can see in this book where our hope, where our confidence must be placed. And it must be placed in one place and one place alone, in God and his truth, in his assurance and his testimony. See, we as believers are not to be driven to and fro by the changing tides of politics, society, religious traditions, or even our own whims. We are to be firmly planted upon Jesus Christ. Where is the first place you go when you feel fearful? Where is the first place you go when you lack confidence? Our society looks to the trends, to the statistics, I see most people on their phone so often, I think they're looking to social media to solve all their problems. The reality is, as we look to Jesus, is that the first place you go? Is he your confidence? Is he your fear? Because when things are going badly, that is the first thing I want to check is, Lord, is there any sin in me that is making this discipline? And if I search myself and I know I search his word and I talk to the counselors in my life who speak into my life and they say, no, we don't see any sin. Then I respond to him and I say, Lord, I trust in you and I know I can have confidence in this. If we place our confidence and we place our fear and our trust in the appropriate place, then eventually we can stand in the midst of the worst tribulation and trial and know that we're okay, that we have nothing to fear. This Advent season is one where I think a lot of us need to hear this. I'm fearful of meeting with my family, my in-laws. I'm fearful of if my finances can handle it. Maybe you're looking at the world around us and saying, I'm fearful at this world that's gone upside down. Maybe there's strain in your marriage, strain in your relationship, strain in your own job. My suggestion to you is don't put your confidence in anything but Jesus. And as we approach Christmas, I would even say this to you. Do not put your confidence in Christmas. Don't put your confidence in the traditions. Don't put your confidence in the songs that play incessantly since Thanksgiving. Don't put your confidence in anything other than what Christmas is meant to celebrate 
The fact that in the midst of gloom and darkness, God stepped into the light, brought his light to us, gave us his son, born of a virgin, to live on this earth, to die, to resurrect, and to speak to us that we have nothing to fear. Psalm 46 said it so well. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. My prayer for you and for all of us this Christmas season is that we can stand in a firmness of faith where we know we have nothing to fear. And as we pray for our brother William as what he's going through, I would encourage you, be the hands and feet of Christ to our friend. Pray for him. Give him a call on his phone. I want to see his cell phone blowing up with people telling him that he's loved. Bring him some food. Bring his brother and sister-in-law who are taking such good care of him food. Let us be a people that can rejoice with him and help him to understand what he already knows. That perfect love casts out fear and he has nothing to fear. And I want to give you that message this morning as well. Whatever is coming at you, whatever is making you fearful, Put your fear and your confidence in the right spot and know that nothing can win against Jesus.